Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode focuses on what's going on inside the town in Season 3, Part 7 of Twin Peaks The Return. Another storyline is Ben and Beverly. They're in the Great Northern having a good time, like they're looking for a sound. There's a weird hum, and they keep going from one corner of the room to the other and trying to track it down. And we can see them really enjoying each other's company. And this was already teased a little with Jerry when he was saying, ah, did you bang her yet? And all this stuff. And Ben goes, oh, no, no, she's married, and that's rude, and this and that. You know, he's sort of a different person from the one we knew in seasons one and two. I thought this scene was going to be Audrey's big introduction. There was a long pan with that tingling hum sound in the background. I thought, okay, this is it. Get ready. We're going to see Audrey for the first time. It took seven episodes, but here she is. And uh, no, it's not that. There's a real nice magic to this scene. Just the, the, the chemistry between Ashley Judd and Richard Bamer is very nice. And uh, there's the, 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 the sound design is, is really cool. And this is the first time to me that the Great Northern uh, set, I mean, I say first time, I think this is the first time we've seen it. This episode is the first time we've returned to that since part one, I think. So this is really the part where it comes alive. It feels like it's part of Twin Peaks, not just a soundstage in LA. Uh, I think it's not just the sound, but also the way it's shot, but also the lighting. The fact that it's at night and there's sort of a glow with the lamps and everything. It has that same feel as the diner in part five or six, and as the sheriff's station in part four, where we're getting that sort of inner glow warmth of Twin Peaks. And this is the first time we get that with the Great Northern, to my eyes anyways. One thing interesting to note here is Ashley Judd, I think, is the only member of Twin Peaks to ever be a Time Magazine Person of the Year. Now, of course, this is because of the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. Uh, she appeared on there a few months after this episode aired. The other characters in Twin Peaks that we deal with in this episode are Jerry. As I mentioned, you know, he's on an iPhone, and that conversation opens the episode. We see him looking around panicked in the woods and then calling Ben and telling him that he's lost, his car has been stolen, he doesn't know where he is, and he thinks he's high, and Ben is just exasperated, like maybe he's heard all this before. He doesn't know what to do about it. It's just a, a funny study in contrast. They were always kind of somewhat different, but they seemed a little more simpatico in the old show. Right away, this scene cues us up with a sense of like, what's going on here? Confusion. And that fits the investigatory mode of this whole episode. I mean, you think about it, like Jerry's trying to figure stuff out for himself here. Like he's He's kind of investigating something too, just like Frank and Hawk are, and just like Knox is with Briggs's body. And we in the audience don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. We do know the Frank and Hawk stuff. We know what happened with Cooper, but all of the other stuff, we're just as much in the dark as the characters are. So it's a great way to start the episode, even though this is a one-off. It's the only scene we see with Jerry in this episode. Um, it just it it establishes that that kind of mystery sense in a really fun way right off the bat. I think this is also the first time we've really spent substantially in the woods. The scenes with the log lady and Jacoby, so they're in the woods, but they're on their property, they're in their homes, you know. We get these overhead shots of the trees, but we haven't really like wandered in the woods. This is our first tiptoe in that direction. And it's also definitely the first time we've really spent in the woods during the day. So we actually can get a good look around at all the trees and stuff. And there's a sense of that overall in this episode. You know, you see like, uh, for example, the hit and run stuff. We see Andy meeting with a farmer and there's like these mountains in the background with mist, fog, 
rising from them. And you just get a really atmospheric sense of Twin Peaks in this episode, I think, more so than any previous one. The Cooper investigation has a pretty big episode this time. We see Hawk and Frank looking at Lara's diary pages and realizing she says something about the good Coopers in the lodge. And they realize, okay, so the one who came out of the lodge must not have been the good Cooper. That's Hawk's conclusion. Frank Skypes with Doc Hayward and uh, he discusses, you know, the last night that he saw Cooper 25 years ago, way back when. Talks about seeing him in the hospital and taking him there after he hit his head on the mirror and then seeing him wander off later. And that was the last time he saw him. And he mentions that he gave a strange look. So everyone kind of realizes something was off with Cooper. They just can't put their finger on it. This is really the stuff here. This is like the pure fan lore tied deeply to the old material that I think a lot of viewers were looking for. And in that sense, part seven is like the anti part one, you know, where that one just kind of defied any desire to have people really directly referencing where the show left off. You, you know, you did see Mr. C and there was obviously stuff rooted in the season finale, but it was almost like they'd skipped to a different universe where it was more about New York and Buckhorn and stuff. Here we're getting like right to the heart of it. And it's also cool because this links Firewalk With Me in the show. They talk about a, an element that was only in Firewalk With Me, which we'll talk about more in the Laura section, but that's Annie appearing in Laura's dream. And they link that to the show because they talk about bringing Leland to the sheriff's station to ask him about the murder of Jacques Renault and thinking, well, gee, maybe he hid the the pages in the uh, bathroom door where, where Hawk found it. So we're dealing with all that. And of course, we're also talking about the events of the finale, Glastonbury Grove and Annie and Cooper coming out of the lodge and all of that stuff. So they're laying down roots in the old story big time. And there's something very exciting about that. Now, with the Skype scene, that's kind of cool because Warren Frost, you know, I, I I don't know when this scene was shot. I do know it was shot before production, like Mark Frost and his, his kids went up to visit Warren Frost at the hospital where he was, because at this point he was already in the early stages of Alzheimer's, and they shot the interview with him. They had David Lynch directing him over Skype, and they kind of handled it in person and fed him the lines and stuff. I mean, I don't know to what extent he was sort of able to grapple with the part himself. Um, I do know they were there helping him out. But the point is, it was shot before the production began in September of 2015. So I was just curious about this. I, I did the math. I looked it up. Warren Frost was born in, I think, July 1925. So that means he was 90 when production began. So depending how long this was shot before uh, the rest of the production... He could have been 90 or, you know, the last few months of being 89. And up to this point, the oldest actor in Twin Peaks was Hank Warden, who plays the room service waiter. He turned 90 in 1991, which was the year that he shot the finale, where he's in the red room and he says, coffee, coffee, and walks backwards and all of that stuff. That scene was shot in March of 91, and he was born in June of 1901. So, you know, this is me, my nerdy numbers, years, birth, age, obsession, uh, trying to figure out which one was the older. And I guess it depends. If the scene with Warren Frost was shot after Lynch did his whole, like, leaving Showtime stunt negotiating tactic thing, where he left for a month and a half, if it was shot after that, then Warren Frost was older than Hank Warden. So that's a big hullabaloo about nothing, I guess, but I, I think it's kind of cool. Warren Frost is probably the oldest actor ever to appear in Twin Peaks at almost 90 years old, just 
barely beating out Hank Warden. This episode, and particularly this section, has a lot of modern tech. We see Frank on the phone with Harry. It's an iPhone. We also see Jerry talking on an iPhone earlier, and later we see Cynthia Knox, the lieutenant, Air Force lieutenant, talking on an iPhone. And of course, the big technology thing in this episode is Skype. We see in a computer screen that pops up out of Frank's desk. And that's the cool thing. So this is like an example, I guess, of new tech, but treated in a way that's sort of seamlessly fits with the show's old aesthetic, where we have this wooden paneled computer rising up from Frank's desk, which is really funny. There's also the laptop on the plane Albert and Gordon are looking at. So yeah, it is a very tech-heavy episode, I think. In the Roadhouse, there's no band playing this episode. We just get one long sweeping scene where a guy, a janitor, is like cleaning up and Green Onions is playing. So this scene is not really typical of the episode as a, as a whole. As I mentioned, it's a very plotty episode, sort of a little more fast paced or at least you know shorter scenes and lots of them but but usually sustaining a narrative thread in one place for for several scenes this is just an a cool directorial indulgence and that's cool i mean the song itself the swinging beat that does kind of fit the tempo of this episode so maybe it works in that sense Jean-Michel storyline he's talking on the phone about two 15 year old prostitutes he sent to somebody and I didn't you know their IDs checked out blah 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 and when it seems like maybe he's being threatened or or warned he says hey listen you know I'm not going to lose this business the Renault the Renault family has owned the roadhouse for generations that's a fascinating little detail among other reasons because I think the first season plays it off more like he's just a bartender who works there the idea that his family actually owned it is not something that they really imply at all in that season. But also, I think the Renaults develop as they go along because when we first meet Bernard and Jacques, they just seem like a couple low-life hoods. They don't seem like they'd be hooked up with this master crime boss that is Jean Renault. And now we see Jean Michel, and we learn that, you know, they, the, the Renaults actually have deep roots in, in Twin Peaks beyond just sort of this shady crime stuff they have legit fronts and stuff like that this scene too of course is a callback to the old show to that old kind of sleazy vibe that Jacques Renault uh, evoked and there's a weird sense of nostalgia to this too like it's it's a disturbing scene like he's talking about like underage prostitution but because it's sort of dealt with at a safe distance and the character's performance is so juicy it feels like a bit of an evocation of like episode seven of the old show or something. In the Frank's family life storyline, uh, Frank calls Harry and he says, oh, where, where they got you? And then he reacts somehow. We, we are guessing it's maybe a more serious critical ward or something uh, treating his illness. And Frank says, damn, I'm sorry, get some rest. Uh, you know, he was going to ask him about the Laura case and he just lets it go and he says, Harry, do me a favor, beat this thing. And so we just get a real sense here of the seriousness of, of Harry's condition. This was a last minute scene that was added by Lynch on an interview. Robert Forster talks about this scene and how he really loved it and how Lynch brought it in last minute, just had him, you know, hear the lines and then they went and shot it one funny thing about this scene is it seems to me like it's at night like everything is sort of so dim and there's a glowing light in the background it could just be his office is kind of dark but i think at one point i thought okay so maybe this is later that night and then him skyping uh doc hayward is the next day and i'll talk about this more when i get to the the timeline section but i 
think it's all one day just because that's more logical like he would do all these things in one day but it is odd that they lit it like it was a nighttime scene i wonder if they were shooting a nighttime scene and that's when he just decided to throw it in you have to really think about it to notice that but it is there we get a bit of the double r storyline just norma doing bills at her table we still don't know what for andy's meeting with the farmer because richard's truck is on the uh is in the yard and he's trying to figure out why he has that there. And the farmer doesn't want to tell him. He's really nervous. He begs him to leave, get out of here. Let's arrange, you know, they arrange a meeting later on. The man rushes back into his, his little farmhouse or trailer or whatever. And then later we see Andy waiting for him at their rendezvous point. The, the guy doesn't show. Andy's looking at his watch and eventually leaves. And we see this ominous push into the cabin. It's like a shot out of Mulholland Drive very much where we're moving into the doorway and we just know something terrible happened to this farmer. Um, whatever he was nervous about, surely something to do with Richard, you know, has, has probably come to fruition. When this episode aired, there was a lot of speculation about Andy's watch. It's a really nice watch. I think it's a Rolex and people wondered, is he corrupt? Like how can a small town cop afford this really nice watch? I mentioned the fog in the mountains. There's also a thunderclap and we get the sort of dark, slow, moody part of the Laura theme. The boo-doo-doo-doo. So this just feels very Twin Peaks. This is like the most Twin Peaks atmospheric we've gotten. We do get a lot of Twin Peaks in part five. And I guess in part six, too, where we have um, Carl coming in and hanging out in the park. Both part and five and six, though are more like, um, they're like the inner town bustle. They're like the life of the town within, you know, on the inside. And this is more looking outward at the mountains and the woods surrounding the town that, that give it that special vibe. Another storyline that I think really gets introduced in this episode is uh, the, I guess you could call the storyline of Richard's father. And this is introduced because uh, Doc Hayward talks about seeing Cooper in the hospital and he says he was coming out of intensive care and he thought maybe he was looking in on Audrey Horn because she was in a bank explosion and she was in a coma at this point. Now we can kind of do the math or think about it in our heads and go, hmm, she was in a coma. The evil Cooper visited her. Uh Oh, like this doesn't look good. Here's the thing. Uh, Richard has not been called Richard Horn yet, but in part five, he's billed in the credits as Richard Horn. And of course, this is the episode two where we find about Diane's trauma with Mr. C. So it's sort of a one-two punch. It's kind of hard to take in, in, you know, different ways. One with a character who just seemed kind of a light relief with Diane. and, And now suddenly she's got this trauma with Cooper. And then another character who people... You know, I don't know if shipping was a term at the time, but people certainly shipped Audrey and Cooper. And then, of course, he didn't want to get with her because she was too young. That was the character's justification. That was also the actor's justification for you know, whatever the true reason was. But, you know, to find out suddenly, okay, wow, he might have actually taken advantage of her when she was unconscious and impregnated her. That's pretty disturbing. We might have thought of it before based on how he was credited, but this is the first time it sort of bleeds into the story itself. Beverly's marriage. We see her returning home from work and uh, there's a nurse that's exiting. She says, oh, he missed you. And so Beverly seems slightly miffed by this, like she's being guilt tripped or something. She goes inside and her husband, Tom, is there. He's got a shaved head. He's hooked up to an IV. He just looks very worn and tired. And he's also kind of mopey. He says, oh, well, why'd you work late? What were you doing? And oh, I don't really want dinner. And she just gets fed up and she yells at him. 
says she didn't want to go back to work. She went to, back to work for him for his sake. This is just a fascinating little scene. It's a glimpse of a side story, and it does inform the scenes with Ben. It gives them sort of an extra punch or, or, or dimension or whatever. But I think it also makes Beverly more than just a feature in Ben's storyline, which is kind of cool. Like, she could easily just be, like, one note. This character who's like, oh, oh, she's the secretary, and she's just there so Ben can have a crisis of conscience. But no, we get to see her in her own element as her own distinct character. And I just love that Lynch and Frost made the time for this. I think that's so cool, and it speaks so much to the sort of generosity of spirit of this show that it's willing to expand the scope. It makes her a character in her own right, and a very complex one, because... We're seeing, you know, potentially yelling at your possibly dying husband is not necessarily a sympathetic stroke, but we can kind of see maybe he's a little passive aggressive. Maybe this was always how their marriage was. And now he said it's just a fascinating, complex scene. I, I, I really like it a lot. Health is a major concern of this season between Tom, the log, the log lady, Harry. This season is really haunted by illness and particularly illnesses affecting people who are aging. And then a random storyline is a guy running into the diner looking for Billy. I think he's played by David Lynch's son. And he just yells out like, has anybody seen Billy? And then he leaves. And the only thing to note about this is there's a random switch in the customers at the counter. It's like totally different actors when we cut back to a certain shot. And a lot of people notice this. A lot of people speculate against it, about it. I still suspect that... It's just a continuity error where Lynch liked the different shots, so he used them. And, but why would he change the extras there? I don't know. Okay, so maybe they're on to something, but, but I have no answer there. There are a lot of returning storylines from the original Twin Peaks cycle. So The Secret Diary reappears seven entries after its last appearance uh, in Firewalk With Me. All of these storylines, by the way, appeared for the last time in Firewalk With Me. Annie's Abduction is another one. The Cooper and Audrey flirtation, that would not be seven entries after its last appearance because there is no Cooper-Audrey flirtation in Firewalk with me or The Missing Pieces. That would be eight entries after its last appearance in the uh, season two finale. And then Laura and Ben, which uh, also would not be something that we heard of at all uh, in the uh, Missing Pieces or Firewalk with me. It's a storyline that's left out since Richard Boehmer didn't want to be in that. The last time we would have heard about that storyline would be, let's see if I can do the math, uh, 8 plus 4, so 12 entries ago in episode 25, when he tells Audrey that he has regrets about Laura, sort of euphemistically referring to the fact that he trafficked and had sex with her when she was a minor, which she only ever was because she died at 17. So these storylines are folded into existing storylines for the most part. Uh, most of them can go under the Cooper investigation now, uh, they're flaring up as a kind of reminder of how season two told its story. But at this point, what was the Laura Palmer investigation and all of its component parts is becoming the Cooper investigation and some other component parts. Uh, the Cooper-Audrey thing we can really place right now with the question of who is Richard's father since we haven't seen Audrey yet. The one storyline that I think we can leave for the moment as something that's not quite been folded into another story at this point is the men Ben's mention of Laura Palmer, just the hint, of, just a hint of what their relationship was and the fact that he says this is a story for another day uh, suggests that maybe something about that will come back. And I don't think we can properly fold it into the Ben Beverly storyline exactly. Uh, it comes up through that, but it isn't 
at this moment contained within that. Maybe it will be. Come to think of it, there are a couple more stories as well. The mystery box and the Ghostwood uh, estates deal that uh, Ben is making throughout season two. Of course, those two stories, or actually seasons one and two, come to think of it, those two stories come together in the season two finale when Audrey is locking herself against the bank door in protest of the Ghostwood deal. And at the same time, Andrew and uh, Pete are coming to explore whatever the mystery box is, which turns out to be a bomb that explodes the bank. So that leads us to this moment where we find out that Audrey was in a coma. Uh, Cooper went to her room. So, of course, this is now also bringing in the Cooper-Audrey stuff and all kind of turning into a question about Richard's father to the extent that we're connecting Richard and Audrey at this point. As I said, there's no confirmation in this episode, but because he's been publicly named in the credits as Richard Horn, it's definitely a seed they're planting in the mind of viewers who are paying attention to the credits at least. So those two storylines now all just kind of come together with this in this moment. And the last time that we saw the Ghostwood storyline would actually be the missing pieces when Leland was getting Sarah and uh, Laura to chant with him in Norwegian. So strange to see where that's all led to. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow we'll look at the mythology, specifically what I call the lodge lore. I don't think there are any scenes that take place in the spirit world itself in this episode, but there's a lot of... uh, mythological stuff going on to dig into please rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts you can also support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies see you tomorrow